0: Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Research. I'm Professor Trish Ray, and this podcast is one in our series from the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Strategy, Entrepreneurship, and Management Assistant Professor Chris Steele, whose research focuses on the workings of knowledge, identity, and social order. In his empirical work on data analytics, he studies how different ways of producing knowledge can be accepted as legitimate. And in some recent theoretical work, he looks at how the normal and unremarkable nature of social life is actually a remarkable achievement. This is based on what he calls an intricate interactional choreography. Chris, it's a pleasure to welcome you here today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So Chris, I wanna start this podcast by talking about your article that was very recently published in the Academy of Management Review. The title of the article is, When Things Get Odd, Exploring the Interactional Choreography of Taken-for-Grantedness. Congratulations, Chris, on this really great publication.
1: Thank you very much, (laughs) I appreciate that.
0: In this article, you develop a process model to explain how the taken for grantedness of prevailing institutions is sustained or interrupted in everyday interaction. I note, this is a sole authored publication, and I'm really interested in hearing more about how you developed the paper. So first, I wanna ask you to tell us how did you come up with the basic ideas? Absolutely, so really,
1: It first emerged when I was thinking about institutional theory and how uh, institutionalists argue that We tend to conform to prevailing modes of thought and behaviour and at the same time I was delving into some anthropological work and particularly the work of uh, James C. Scott in Seeing Like a State which looked at how administrators trying to make sense and understand local arrangements for, for purposes of taxation and administration in villages Really struggled to understand these modes of life and what was going on and how they could intervene in an effective way. And it seemed to me you had these two very different stories about prevailing modes of life being immediately intelligible and and obvious to everybody and extremely difficult to understand and illegible. And what I wanted to do was think about how different modes of life might differ in how easily legible or intelligible they might be, both to insiders and outsiders, and the consequences that that might have for the types of social change that you would see. Now, the paper actually landed in a very different place to that through, through the review process.
0: There's always a great story for a paper, and that's one of the things uh, that we love to hear about. Okay, great that you mentioned the review process, Chris, because that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Can you tell us more about the publication process, how the review feedback that you got changed the paper over time?
1: Absolutely. So in this case, it was quite a dramatic change. And the very first set of reviews that I got were both uh, very encouraging and and somewhat daunting. reviewers and the editor really liked the paper but at the same time they felt the story that i was telling was a little bit too much of a perspective based contribution it was a way of looking at things that was interesting but it wasn't necessarily fleshed out into a specific enough theoretical model and they really pushed in that direction and the way i came to understand that was that they really wanted me to dig up the premises of my original argument. And, And my original argument being that different domains of life, different modes of life vary in how intelligible they are, how easily comprehensible they are to people. Well, they wanted to know, or so I thought, and so I decided, how this intelligibility was achieved. How is it that the world is made comprehensible in uh, and through interaction. So I started to dig into that and that's where the current version of the paper really came from.
0: Chris, you developed some really fantastically interesting ideas here about taken for grantedness and about the precariousness of taken for grantedness. Can you explain that just a little bit more for our listeners?
1: Absolutely. So, I think the basic idea on which the paper is founded is that when you think about skillful participation in everyday life, that relies on you taking a lot for granted. It's a little bit like riding a bicycle. When you're riding, if you're thinking too much about where your feet are going and how to stay balanced, you're going to fall off or you're going to crash into a wall or a pedestrian. And if what really needs to happen is that you need to have all of that at the back of your mind while you focus on where you're going and how fast you're going and whether there's anything in the way. And social life is much the same. If you're constantly thinking about how shops work or how a lecture should work, you can't be in the moment and participate effectively. So taken for granted is something we really rely on in everyday life. And the idea of the interactional choreography that you mentioned earlier is that our ability to take things for granted relies on the activities that other people undertake to make life comprehensible to us to achieve uh, what I refer to as mutual intelligibility, where we understand one another and what's going on well enough to get on with life. So the the example I always go to, which is a little bit trivial, but I'm very fond of it, is the handshake. And it's actually a little bit out of date now as well, maybe. But uh, with the handshake, We all know what a handshake is like, and you can vary the nature of a handshake quite a bit, but you also have to regulate consciously or unconsciously the strength of your handshake, how close you are to people so that it stays a handshake, so that everyone knows a handshake is happening and not an assault or a practical joke or an attempt to knock somebody over, right? And this interactional choreography is what creates taken for grantedness but because it relies on all of these little subtle efforts to make the world comprehensible, it's very precarious because any move could go wrong. Anything could not fit and could seem odd to you and make you start to question what's going on and breach ultimately that taken for grantedness.
0: That's a great example. And I know that in your paper, you develop that example and some others. So I'm encouraging our listeners to read the paper and follow up on the examples and how they help to clarify these great theoretical ideas that you're developing. I also wanted to ask you a little bit about the term you use, which is oddities. And how do oddities fit into the explanations that you're giving us?
1: Yes, so that's a fantastic question. I think So, for me, oddities are often very small little things, missteps and misfirings. So, you could think about a secret handshake where uh, perhaps as you're shaking hands, there is a particular way of holding your fingers or of connecting with the other person. One thing that could produce an oddity is you doing something to a member of a secret society that's sort of like their handshake, but not exactly like it. And they just wonder, well, what exactly is this? Is this a handshake? Is it a secret handshake? I I don't quite know what's happening. And that's, to me, the nature of an oddity. Now, an oddity could also be something really big. If you ask somebody the weather and they start talking about what they've eaten recently, there's something really disconcerting about that oddity. But going from something small to something big, these oddities disrupt the flow of interaction, make you stop and think. And often they call for a kind of repair work that ethno and conversation analysts uh, talk quite a lot about where you might get the chance to correct yourself. So you see somebody doesn't know what's happening and you try and clarify, or they can intervene to let you know they don't know what's happening. And it's only when that breaks down that taken for granted this really starts to fall apart.
0: Chris, these are really thoughtful ideas about taken for grantedness and oddities and repair work and how things fit together in ways that others really haven't explained in, in such a fascinating way as you're doing in your paper. So I wanna come back to the question about the review process. And can you give us a few insights about how reviewers and the editors work together with you in shaping this paper into the version that we see in print?
1: Absolutely. I would say even going back before the review process, I just emphasized the importance of extensive workshopping. Um, I got this to a place where I thought I'd be happy to see it in print before I even submitted it. Uh, I presented it at a few conferences to get a sense of what people were, uh, were thinking and then once it got into the review process i think i think my biggest bit of advice would be to take time and possibly extensions to ensure that you can really address what the reviewers are saying and make sure that you take those concerns seriously because i was incredibly lucky really really incredibly lucky with the degree of investment from my editor and from the reviewers that I had throughout the process, they produced dozens of pages of detailed feedback and suggestions uh, about things that they did and didn't like in the paper. And sometimes it would take months to a year to really think through and respond to everything that they wanted to do. it's worth taking that time. And it's worth seeing them as supporters, with rare exceptions, um, but worth seeing them on the whole as trying to support you rather than as seeing them as the enemy. I'd also say workshopping with colleagues along the way was very helpful to me. This paper, the review process was so extensive, I think there are three quite different versions of the paper that that came out of it, and I'm even returning to the earliest version to rework it uh, as we speak, not quite as we speak, but nearly. The most important element of this is, is good luck in your editor, your reviewers and your colleagues.
0: I think there's more than good luck. It's also building on a good product and then getting feedback and making it better over time, which clearly you have this great story of telling us about. So Chris, as we come to the end of this podcast, I wanna ask you if you might share some advice or suggestions for PhD students or other junior scholars who are just getting started with their research.
1: I would love to, I can never turn down an opportunity to opine, preferably at length. Uh, I think first I would say Do think about theory papers, they're really a fantastic chance to tie things together, and often to cover a topic that's too broad for any one empirical paper. So a theory paper can be a wonderful way to kick off a research program that might have several empirical pieces in it. It's a wonderful way to cap that program and to tie together everything that you've learned through empirical work. And on top of that, it's just an opportunity to take a a topic you don't want to do empirical work on, that you're excited about, and really think about how the literatures you know, the ideas that you're familiar with, or your own unique perspective could contribute to our collective understanding of that topic. So I would just encourage people to think about theory papers. They are a different craft. They are not easy to do, necessarily. but they are incredibly valuable as part of what you do. I would say um, embrace the the vocational part of, of academia as much as you can and think about your overarching intellectual project and how these different papers are all contributing something to your growing understanding of the social world or some part of it. And don't get too stuck in your discipline as you think about uh, what theories you might want to draw on. Yes, you need to contribute to a particular conversation or a small set of conversations, but you can bring ideas from many places to the drawing board. I think just two last smaller things, well, not smaller, uh, two last things. One is just cultivate a network of mentors and peers. I think as I've mentioned, I couldn't be luckier in terms of the support that I've had, both uh, professionally and emotionally from my friendship group, almost so many of whom are academics. And I really believe that's a critical ingredient in success is make sure you have these people, especially as a doctoral student, to see you through the job market and other stressful, difficult times uh, successfully. And As part of that, do be aware and conscious of mental health and think about how to ensure that you've got a decent regime of self-care, bearing in mind that any vocation can be all-consuming and you need to recognize the threat posed by the joys of your work and carve out a little bit of space for yourself as, as well.
0: Those are great points, Chris. So thank you been a real pleasure to talk with you today. It's
1: been a pleasure to be here, Trish, and, and thank you very much for the invitation. I've, I've loved being able to do this.
0: And now for our listeners, if you'd like more information about Assistant Professor Chris Steele's research or other podcasts in our series, please visit the Alberta School of Business Research webpage. And now to close this episode of Speaking of Research, I'll remind you that I'm Professor Trish Ray at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. Thank you for listening.